0: This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Advantages Digital Learning Solutions, where learning is reimagined. Good afternoon, and welcome to Learning Reimagined. I'm Allison Dampier, and with me, as always, is Sandy Gamba. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Allison. I am so excited today. We have with us an expert in all things kids. Um, we have with us Lisa Crosby, who has her master's of education. She's been a teacher. She's an author. She started her own school. She really is a woman of all things, and her latest passion is the neurosciences of our youth. So, Lisa, welcome to Learning Reimagined. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. What What did I miss in the intro? <laughs> I, oh, think I, I need to do a better job.
1: Uh, I've been into neuroscience, as it applies to learning, since my graduate degree in 1999. So it's nothing recent. I've I've actually been following neuroscience and the developments, which have been really prolific since the 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's the only thing that wasn't accurate. I'm a literacy and math specialist. I've taught public school. Uh, During those years, I taught high school um, math. So math through calculus, and you can imagine how much um, I experienced kids' anxieties and kids being stressed out in math class or came to find kids who struggled reading in my math class. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went and got my master's to be a literacy specialist and um, had an emphasis on neuroscience as it applies to learning. So <clears throat> since then, I mean, I left public education in 2005, really for the mom thing, because my own kids weren't getting served, and they were in public schools and charter schools in my town, and um, I I, I really uh, was motivated to serve my own kids, because <laughs> <laughs> we're all moms, and we all want our kids to be successful, independent Absolutely. learners, and I think, you know, as a mom, that's a big deal, but Um, I ended up really wanting to, because the math geek in me is very data driven. So I wanted to put some theories and research from neuroscience into practice in 2005 and see, and I had this burning question, how much could I improve kids' skills in one year? That was my question. If I put all these things into place, and I controlled the school environment. The, mm-hmm. I could create an emotionally safe culture. I could do pre-assessments and post-assessments and measure, um, and try to answer that question with small class sizes. We had maximum of ten, and you know we did a lot of unique things there. Which you know the school's been closed since 2015, so I'm not trying to promote it. I'm just trying to explain <laughs> my motivation mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. doing that was really my own experiment and what I've learned is that it's possible to move kids three to nine years in one year with teaching uh with my knowledge I don't know it's I'm kind of a unicorn that's what's hard is that I can't give everybody all my information like how do you do that that's a hard thing to answer Mm -hmm. because I have a lot of sources and I read about a lot of specific problems. And I follow a lot of excellent neuroscientists and neuropsychologists, and their research turns out to be effective. (laughs) So it's really them, I think.
2: That's absolutely fascinating, especially with your passion in science and being able to implement things in such a way where you see that difference. And maybe even in your own son's lives, but also within your own community to be that effective. How, how did you, how did you begin that process? How did you, that's fascinating <laughs> to me because the impact can can be so, so big and significant.
1: Well, um, it's pretty cool, Allison, that I met you through a student who had been at my school. So that's pretty cool that we know that person in common, but um I think it's just that I'm an empathetic person and I don't feel like children are disposable. I feel like we need to value each child. And one main premise of neuroscience is every brain thinks differently, yet we have, yet we treat them all the same. And that just inherently makes no sense whatsoever, I have a colleague and close friend who's an education attorney and a got his doctorate in corporate or uh, education reform from Berkeley. Mm. He was pretty big wig in that his field. He served as president of my board for ten years, volunteered like he's wow. an angel on the
0: planet I want to get his name and number for the podcast too education reform <laughs> well unfortunately we he's uh
1: struggling with some health issues, so oh. I'm going to protect him for a minute but Sorry. we are um collaborating on my new book and um i I just want to say that he gave me an awesome analogy this morning uh in our chat he said, you know would you would you support medical or healthcare. If you, um, if anytime you needed a medical issue, you were checked into the hospital for 12 days, you were put through the exact same series of tests as everybody else. And you, um, you know, had to commit to 12 days. Like if you're sick, you're going to go to school or you're going to go to the hospital for 12 days, go through the same series of tests. Everybody will be treated fairly. <laughs> Would that be a medical plan you'd like to subscribe to? No, but that's what we do to our kids, right? right. Go to school for 12 yes. years. We give them all the very same protocol and we're treating you fairly. And doesn't that make like, doesn't that bring that little point home? It doesn't really um. make sense what we're doing. And I know the pandemic was pretty tough on education, but what I think it did is helped parents have a paradigm shift to more of the reality of the problems. But if you look at the data, American education has been in decline, a steady linear decline for 30 years. Yeah. So the pandemic just made people aware right. of the existing problem. It, mm-hmm. it didn't cause the problem. It didn't exemplify the problem. It isn't the problem. It show, It kind of like was the Wizard of Oz where you reveal behind First it's behind the, the curtain going, right oh my god everybody saw a little bit behind the curtain and they were shocked yeah at what they saw mm-hmm. and so i feel optimistic for the because of the paradigm shift parents have had mm-hmm. and that's who
0: i'm writing to in my book my next that's, book that's that's fantastic and you already see it starting to shift i'm sure you're familiar with what's going on in arizona with their ESA program. And now they've just expanded the ESA program. And so school choice, we talked about it at one of our previous podcasts, school choice has become, it's in the news, you know? And in, in, in Arizona, it's a—it's their ESA programs are throughout the country, but Arizona's is really taking off and they have expanded it now to, to the state and to a lot more, uh, many more students are now qualified for this. And I, I think this ESA voucher system is going to really become um, much more popular throughout. Our well, it's country. a
2: testament to what you were saying, Lisa, is that parents now feel like they know more and we have more options. And so we're demanding more as well. And we, we have one shot of being good parents and trying to do the best we can for our students. And so like you, it's just being able to to provide those options. And oftentimes our parents are not aware of what is available. Mm -hmm. And so in Arizona, they're, they're really spearheading this effort. And I think other States are watching closely.
1: I'm all for a parent being able to make a choice for their child because it sounds like an American value that should have been here the whole time, <laughs> because yes, it's a right? freedom. It's a freedom that that you know who could make the best decision for a child, but a parent, right? We, we allow parents to make decisions in every other arena of their life except education. It's mandated, or we're in zones, and doesn't that just seem so backwards? It's well, you know, we're. I think we need to just wake up and preserve the rights we have or create the ones we don't because our next generation is going to have to pick up the slack and Mm -hmm. rise to the occasion of this technological society that's going at warp speed, but education's not keeping up. And I just want to see, you know, I mean, I would love to throw some data at you for your listeners. So um, now na- I, I love the nationalreportcard.org It's, it's just a, it's a very statistically reliable set of data. And I, you know, as a math geek, I'm pretty critical about misleading statistics. So <laughs> I, I would like to say that's a great place for people to go. If they're like going, if they're, fe- if they're hearing this and thinking, these people are extremists or these people are having a, um, you know we're on a fringe, but honestly, we're talking about a reality that's documented. So here's a couple of numbers. Um, as of 2019, this is pre-pandemic. Um, about 34% of eighth graders were uh, um, met the standards, met or exceeded 34% the standards.
0: nationwide.
2: Yes, this is-
1: nationwide. This is true for math and literacy. So as of 2019, we're sending over 60%, 66% of kids to high school unprepared. And that's like saying, go hiking in the wilderness with no water bottle, no weapon and no shelter, you know, like good luck. And that's, I think that's cruel, inhumane, unconscionable words come to my mind along that. You know, and right. yet, as Americans, we're not talking about it. We're not we're not actively doing anything about it. We feel politically oppressed and I'm not a political person. I really um, am just trying to advocate for kids and I have a strong personality um, and I'm happy to do that. But at times it takes me to my knees and I will cry in sadness at the suffering of kids of all socioeconomic levels. This is not something that's rural or urban or Mm -hmm. low economic or high economic. This is universally Mm -hmm. hurting children. So here's another statistic. In 2019, we had 61% of high school graduates be accepted into college. Okay, well then academically, only 31% of those were academically prepared. So again, this is why colleges have ma- and I've taught college level math, locally I've I've support a lot of college test taking um LSAT, GMAT, stuff like that. Um and I work with people one-on-one and I'm thinking, how are you even in this program when you don't know X, Y, and Z? Like we have a lot of work to do. Right. Um, I'm helping nursing students going back to school. I mean, my client base goes from preschool to college um, with lots of different academic challenges. And I I love that about my job, um, but I um, I'm just trying to say, out loud. And I love that I have two women who are passionate and care and are invested in education and providing opportunities around the world, which is exciting to me. So um I'm just feeling like I, I have to try to accurately convey that we've got, we're not doing right by our kids mm-hmm. and something has to change. Which
2: With <laughs> that statistic, going like, back to the eighth graders, not being prepared for high school
1: 34 percent meet the standard standard, which is like an 80 percent uh 75 to 80 percent ability of what's grade level Mm -hmm. so that you know so that's like (laughs) we're We're, sending them into high school curriculum because we have a product centered system Mm -hmm. and they're not ready for the product yet we're going to send them
2: which also highlights why the dropout level is so high. The retention level is, is low in having students make it through high school. Well, high school is a
1: very fixed product, but you can get K through eight in a lot of forms. And and yet we're all aiming them for a high school product, which is very fixed. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: uh, we're not doing a good enough job to make sure they're ready for it. And I really think there's, um, I think it's more of a systemic issue. It's more of a design, educational design issue. Oh, I
0: wholeheartedly
1: agree with you on that. Because I know a lot of good educators with the heart in the right place. Um, but they're tied.
0: Their hands they're are tied. tied. You know, I have a
1: great little video clip that I'd love to send you or oh, promote, but it's a middle school English teacher, mm-hmm. someone loved and adored in Washoe County who said, I, she hired me for her grandson who she had every day after school, but you couldn't teach him to spell or write properly. And he was bright in every other way. And, you know, I got in there and he had some really specific things that only someone with my expertise would know. A regular K 8 teacher would never have the background on what he needed, it's just not in their teacher training. And lots of well meaning people tried to be kind and be helpful to him, good teachers. And a grandmother who's a retired English teacher couldn't touch his problem. And this is what I face all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't clone myself. I'm one person. But I feel like we could design a system where there were lots of me's for the pe- the kids we miss. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we're missing them on purpose or we have, you know, dumb people in the teaching role. We have a lot of caring, kind educators, but we have a systemic design problem. I Mm agree.
0: When a couple of points on that, Uh, you may, I referenced this book time and time again on our podcast, it's called dumbing us down by John Taylor Gatto. And he talks about how our education system was developed during the industrial age. And that's exactly how it remains. It has not been modified or revamped or anything. It's very much you sit down when you they tell you, you do math when they tell you, you respond to bells. It's industrialized. And that's not how we learn. And it's not what's best for kids. It's just incredibly frustrating that everything else in our lives have been reformed and revamped and education, which is the foundation of a person. And it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And that's why um, well, that's actually why we started Advantages, was to, to do something different and to give opportunities to kids who don't get them in a traditional setting, because the traditional classroom teaches to that bell curve. And, you know, not every kid fits into the box, and the majority of kids don't. And we really need to address the There's nothing wrong have.
1: with all the unique brains in the world, like nothing, what's wrong is how we're addressing them and how we're not meeting their needs and how we're missing opportunities. And I guess what I'm excited about, I mean, right here on the shelf in my office is all my data. And if someone wants to know, like, is it possible to get every kid to grade level every year? And the answer is yes, it is. And I feel like we can, um, Take the people that are having the successes myself and many others I've um, I, I'm bad with names but there's a school in Texas that I'm really impressed with um, run by a former um, Navy seal mm. uh, Anyway, I'm going to get back to that because I actually can't quote him. I was listening to a podcast with my son driving out to rural Nevada a couple of weeks ago. But I mean, there's and there's you guys, there's me. But I think there needs to be some sort of collaboration and cohort between like, I think we need to start an American summit of educators doing things differently with data of effectiveness. Because I've I've listened to a lot of people talk about ideas for school reform but they don't have the data of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they don't, they, it's just, it's ideas that have research behind it, but not data of effectiveness. Sure. But then there's people like maybe me and you who have data of effectiveness, like, yeah. and let's mm-hmm. combine and redefine. I mean, we all don't have to be in our own little corner, right? Not collaborating. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that is an idea I would love to explore. Mm-hmm. because I've been like, I'm sure of myself. Now I've been doing this full time for almost 20 years.
2: Mm. <laughs> and with your expertise, the brains can change at any age. So whether that student is, is five or 12 or 17, how, how can we bring light to that? How, how do we have those breakthroughs? Cause you've experienced <clears throat> them, you know, that they're possible, How do we give hope to our parents that are listening?
1: Um, Something I would love. Let's just talk chronologically for a minute. Don't sing the ABCs with your preschoolers. That confuses the brain and puts reading in the creative side rather than near the language center. Something we do in America that's actually detrimental. I heard this from Dr. Janine Heron at a talk she gave. she's I'm a big fan of hers uh also resolve your check and see if your child's primal reflexes are resolved, and most people are like, "What are you talking about? Yeah, what do you mean by that <laughs> Well, this is something done in Europe um in many areas. I've talked to educators in Europe, but in America, we have no idea what you're talking about. It's chapter nine in my book i wrote a book, the struggling student, Mm -hmm. um, the action plan for parents to unlock academic potential. Is that your
0: recent book or is that your, this is my only published book, but I'm in the process for my second book. Okay. Yeah. So we will put a link to that book on our, um, on all our socials, but say the title again. Chapter nine talks all about primal reflexes.
1: There's, um, less than 10 of them. They're innately in everybody's So, every like, for example, I'll give one the spinal gallant reflex causes your body to wiggle back and forth, which helps you be born through the birth canal. That Mm -hmm. reflex needs to be gone, which is what resolved means. You kind of grow out of it. And if it isn't, when you sit back in a chair, you'll just want to wiggle. And we have a lot of, and so, and it's, and it's, there's physical exercises, therapy that you can do. Occupational therapists that are specialized in uh, primal reflexes can resolve them with physical therapy. And it's simple, but if yet, if left unresolved, they different reflexes unresolved will prevent mathematical, logical thinking and reading. Fascinating. And, <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, what's happening? So, I mean, I... I'm always looking for that in my clients and screening well, for that.
0: I'm not a license to that though. If a student, I, reading, I, I refer mm-hmm. if they're wiggling in their seat, they're going to be classified as ADHD.
1: That's right, but medicated. it could just be it could just be mm-hmm. an unresolved reflex. Interesting. So, so that's like something for parents to look for. They should all be resolved by the time they're two. I gave very simple parental tests in my book because everything I've read about it is for the expert. I haven't read anything for the parent right. in America. So I wanted to include that in my book because it's powerful and effective and actually, you know, required for us for your child to achieve their potential. So um, that definitely will hold them back. Then I would say. Third grade is when students establish their academic self-esteem, meaning what they're going to expect from their self in the future. So that is an internal kind of hidden psychological factor that parents need to teach kids how to have high expectations of themselves. And if a child is like shunned and stunted and unsuccessful, they're going to go, I am, I'm going to have this low expectation of myself Mm -hmm. academically, and I'm going to kind of hide from trying hard. And they're going to go into that fixed mindset of unproductivity, which is a negative spiral down to a sad self-esteem. But if you can help your child feel successful, and by doing that, I refer to Carol DeWick's work in Growth mm-hmm. Mindset, mm-hmm. which I wholeheartedly aspire mm-hmm. to and use all the time. Yes. I think that is a neuroscience key to parenting, how to not, par- how, don't praise the outcome. You are hurting your child with saying, yay, you got an A, mm-hmm. yay, you're hurting your child. You need to praise the effort. Equally praise, you studied so hard. Mm-hmm. and. And it's okay that you didn't get a great grade this time. Let's learn from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. That's the, what we need to teach because we make kids feel at a very early age, you win, you lose. Right. <laughs> and it's so bad.
2: So and I see parenting a paradigm shift too. Oh my gosh. It's, parents! It's, I think we, we need to he- keep hearing that same message. Yeah. Because we. I, I, I can't same say same it enough. Message. Yeah.
1: Raise the effort, not the outcome. You want your child to have... Um, endurance, some grit. I mean, honestly, I saw a great TED talk. I can't say that guy's name or gal's (laughs) name, but it was all about the one academic predictor was grit in in success. It wasn't IQ. Mm -hmm. It wasn't intelligence. It wasn't reading ability. It's really perseverance and grit. Mm -hmm. And what, what, what grows that in a little human is to make, them proud of their efforts and to learn from their mistakes so another thing I would say is spelling is the leading literacy indicator so if your orthographic knowledge or spelling knowledge is behind um, grade level it will hold every other there's 11 aspects of literacy it's not just reading and writing In spelling, you know, there's there's a lot of little things that have that I check for, and they need to be in concurrence. They need or concordance, excuse me. They need to be in concordance to help grow and respond to curriculum, and uniformly grow. I'm talking comprehension and just everything that's involved in being literate. And um, if they're missing something in that early orthographic knowledge, really K through three, they're learning all their short vowels, they're learning their long vowels, and they're learning their vowel pairs and digraphs and blends. If they're missing anything in that, they will forever be behind and struggling to grow. And, you know, American newspapers are written now at sixth grade reading level, because that's where most of adults are. And that's a sad thing to say out loud Mm -hmm. that that's, you know, that dumbing down of America idea, you kind of wonder, I mean, I can't help but wonder with all the research I know since the nineties, is it purposeful? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy. Like (laughs) I said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm, I'm not a political person, but if if we know better, why aren't we doing better? I don't know. It's a simple concept. It, it is, and I don't know why we're not. Like it it we're not putting I, our foot down as American parents and voters. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to realize that maybe the government shouldn't run education. They're not education they're experts. They're not educators. They, yeah, they're legislators. Let's let's put people who know how to help kids yeah. succeed in the place that matters and that i don't know is that is that a controversial thing to say out loud i wouldn't Mm -hmm. think so to me it's It's
2: saying it over and over again because mm -hmm. we're in in a desperate need
1: we're in desperate needs yeah desperate times calls for desperate measures i don't know so i guess i would say spelling is more important than you think we you know there's stages of spelling development thanks to dr bear's work uh he's uh, the one of the authors of the number one uh, curriculum in uh, language arts in elementary in the world is curric- um, Houghton Mifflin's um, curriculum. Is his publisher, but they are his work is in thirty-seven languages right now and and wow. growing. I'm probably not even accurate at this time, but um, spelling isn't even taught in to after sixth grade. (laughs) So if you don't get it by sixth grade, we're Mm going to just throw you away because now we're going to expect that your literacy keeps growing. But if you have any orthographic issues, we're not even going to finish teaching. So, so sixth grade is about, I've got it right here. It's fifth and sixth grade is, you know, syllable juncture stage and we're not even teaching derivational relations up oh, you get to see my puppy Hamilton yes. <laughs> anyway so I'm just trying to say um, we're not even doing the whole spelling no. in our educational process we're we're giving kids two-thirds of what they need to know and we're not teaching the last third mm-hmm. and we're expecting it to grow on its own but we know it doesn't
0: so why aren't we I don't know and I don't know if they even teach spelling appropriately. So much yeah. of it is just memorization. Here are your 10 <laughs> words for the week, memorize them. They don't talk about the patterns and they don't talk about, you know, if this, then that type of thing. You know, you don't learn the rules as much as, as you're just broke memory of, of, of words. So it, it just... I agree. And yeah. listen, listening to you talk and about all of the things that come into... The, the appropriate, you know, growth of a child, there's no way the way our, our education system is set up that it can be successful.
1: No, it's set up to fail right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what's hard to live with. And it's hard to um, watch the pain that and the shame and the blame mm-hmm. in the wrong place, which is in the heart of the child who's struggling, right? It, it doesn't deserve to be there. Mm-mm. They don't deserve the pain, the shame, the blame. They are reaching out with their bad behavior. Every bad behavior from a child is a cry for help. Yep. I like to say that to parents. Um, a lot of parents will tell me, oh my gosh, you brought my family back. My child is who they are. Um, our whole family has changed because we don't have one suffering member.
2: I love it. Um, it's transformational, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. Just so that's
0: when you know you're doing something right. When we first started our school, we were like, "Oh, is this going to really take off? Is this? Are we doing the right thing?" And one of our very first students, um, his name was Logan, and Logan was kicked out of two or three different high schools. He was categorized as like the troubled kid. So every teacher accepted him as the troubled kid and treated him as such. And um, when he came to us, it was like a last resort. We were brand new and the mom's like, I don't know what else to do. After maybe three weeks with us, the mom called us crying and I will never forget this day. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's what's going on? She goes, I just want to thank you you gave me back my son and at that point we were like we're doing the right thing we it makes a difference and we were able to look at, at this boy for what his strengths were and what his, his hindrances were and he was severely adhd severely you could see it in the patterns and how he approached his schoolwork you know he'd spend 30 seconds here a minute over here and he was jumping around all over the place and if you're in a regular classroom and that's how your mind is working, of course, you're going to get pigeonholed as, you know, off task, distracted. And so once that kept happening, you know, then, then the, the, the bad behavior follows. And so when we were able to just separate all of that and really look at the, the, the child, it was just transformative, you know, and it's so I think the work you are doing is, is so important. And I wish we could clone you. I know. Every every school should have someone
1: like you. Honestly, mm-hmm. I feel like maybe that I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because I think I've just had an unusual interest mm-hmm. in these three areas. I mean, and I have a mechanical engineering background.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm but I changed careers because my husband wanted six kids and the kind of puppies you just saw. So <laughs> I thought, but I only had three sons and but each one of them needed something different. Mm-hmm. One, my my oldest son was upset because he couldn't get in. He, he was gifted in math in middle school. And in seventh grade, he was crying because he was bored to tears and he wanted hard math. <laughs> and I'm a math teacher driving to teach other 150 public school kids. And my own son was literally, you know, in frustration to the point where You know his colon blocked blocked up in school, like like medical medically affecting him. Mm -hmm. He was so upset. The gifted Mm -hmm. kids are forgotten a lot. Mm -hmm. They need they need to be fed, and their crisis of not getting what they're desiring Mm -hmm. is is just as traumatic as a low level kid not getting what he needs, he or she needs. and sitting at frustration there's you know the independent learning level for everybody is narrow mm-hmm. and you have to really know your student to teach to them yet we give kids end of the year testing and we don't do anything with, with it we see what they don't know but then mm-hmm. we put them in the next product like it makes no sense right. we we test them but we don't use the test results to their benefit mm-hmm. we just Move on, and, and it, there's no continuity in curriculum planning. Um, I mean, I know that with national standards and trying to make every topic taught on the same day, that's like approaching it the wrong way. But that was the intention. So yeah. I think we need to just really back up mm-hmm. and talk to people who have data of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. like yourself and myself and these other little places where we're actually responding to students Mm -hmm. and you know like the world has to change and I don't know I'm like it's like my life's mission Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do something and I'm pretty excited to talk about it on your podcast and um, just help parents realize that Maybe they need to look beyond their child and blaming their effort and causing Mm -hmm. that family discord Mm -hmm. because there's uh, what we call in statistics confounding variables, Mm -hmm. things that you can't see that are affecting why your child is struggling. Right. And it's probably not your child. Probably not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's probably something else. And you need to get an expert in your court to help your child. That's I guess what I would say to parents who feel like my child's just not trying. My, I, I mean, know. one one family, I mean, I could tell you lots of little case studies. I don't know if you want little stories of hopefulness, but I um one child I was just thinking of they um were just high grades in middle school and elementary but then high school and she wasn't getting grades. Mm. And this is like educated, nice, upper-middle-class family. Like, what is going on? And they were just all over her for two years. I got involved when she was a sophomore. No. Turns out she had an undiagnosed vision stress issue, which is another issue. Interesting. Um, and it, uh, she had pupil paralysis and could not sustain reading for more than about 16 seconds. No way. So I've never heard, heard of that. She had no idea because that was her only point of view, was her own eyes. Right. She and and her parents had no idea. She presented very normally. She could tell she was a smart girl, but she was auditorially succeeding sure. for her whole life in wow. high school. That's not possible. You have to actually study. And mm-hmm. so that's where life hit the wall for her. And with therapy, um, from a uh, vision specialist I refer and academic therapy, me filling in a lot of holes for her. She's soaring in college. Ah, <laughs> here's here's another case I that. that I think is kind of mind blowing. I have two dyslexic cases I like to mention. Um, because of dyslexia is, a, I'm a literacy specialist and I don't use that word. So no lay people should use that word. That word's meaningless. It's an umbrella that houses lots of different presentations. And what it really means is reading is being processed in an ineffective part of the brain. Okay. If reading is, if you put electrodes all over a good reader's brain and you look at their reading the parts of their brain that are lighting up when they're reading are very near the language center, which um, I have a left, right brain problem. So I'm pretty sure that's on your right side of your brain. That's my, that's my brain, but <laughs> I, I think it's on the right side. I, I've got to double check. But um, so when reading is being processed far away from that, you can imagine all the neural pathways to get to your language mm-hmm. center and all the neural pathways back. And depending on where reading's being processed, which the brain randomly decides where it should process different things. And it tries to categorize, but you can see mm-hmm. why singing the ABCs is not a good idea, because that's the creative musical side, which is very far from the language center, which is what we do to American kids, all of them. Wow. So I would like to kind of say to preschool teachers, talk about the ABCs, but use their letter sounds, like call the letter A a and call the letter B, B, Don't call them A and B because the brain doesn't recognize that as language. Mm-hmm. So these are things I've learned from neuroscientists. This is not just my weird thoughts. It's, these are proven things from people who study the brain. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I met a fourth grader who only wrote, Two and three letter words and not even accurately couldn't do an or on. I mean, on or no accurately. Um, and things were, you know, very dyslexic. And fourth grade, non-reader, couldn't read his own handwriting when he tried. Mm-hmm. It was phonetic, but no one could read it. It was severe. He's now a freshman in high school. Last night I tutored him in chemistry. He got an 87% on his test. It took me four years to get him to grade level because neuroscientists like Dr. Janine Heron and others, she's she's my favorite. I love to promote her, have taught me how to move reading closer to the language center of the brain. That's possible. Wow. I know how. I do it all the time. So, so. Just because a brain initially tries to use an inefficient Mm -hmm. part, you can teach the brain how to move that. So if I know that from reading research, I actually Mm -hmm. haven't, don't have any formal education in neuroscience, but I attend neuroscience conferences and I follow journals and I seriously read that for fun. That's (laughs) what I do.
2: (laughs) Fascinating. And it's so pertinent.
1: And mm-hmm. so like uh recent and so that that student is now a sophomore. He's in my SAT prep, and I'm pretty sure I'm gonna predict an athletic scholarship for him. So we're gonna be ready with wow. NCAA standards. And you know, his life has changed. Mm-hmm. He doesn't fear school, he's succeeding, and it it warms my heart. I'll be seeing him this evening in SAT prep. Mm-hmm. But I I have another student recently who I pulled her out of school in sixth grade. Uh, seventh grade. Mm -hmm. I started supplementally helping her in sixth grade. Again, first grade skills, people called her dyslexic. Mm -hmm. Um, She presented very uniquely. Um, I feared some processing issues that might be permanent, but turns out um, there was only one little processing issue that I had to teach her how to work around. Mm -hmm. So you can work around processing issues with other strategies so even when it's a permanent processing problem, I still say to parents, don't take a label as some death sentence, That's academic death sentence, Huge. Which yes. is kind of how people give it. Mm-hmm. Oh, this has this label and you're stuck with it. Right. No, that is not true. I have proven to myself that there's no human I've met who's unteachable. <laughs> like if you're human, oh my God, you're born to learn. Right. So yeah. So it's it's we have this image that, you know, so anyway, this girl was in sixth grade. She's now a high school freshman. Her ITBS, the IO test of basic skills, highly revered. It's the one I've used uh because everyone values it and it's so reliable. I really think it is. Um homeschool. People use it, public schools, private schools, and I love their database. So she scored grade level or higher um, at the end of her eighth grade year. And I did have her full time for two years. Hmm. And she is now off on her high school journey without being a problem. And there's a picture of her dancing on my website with her Hmm. surprise graduation we did in her backyard in in her cap and gown. I love it
2: you're changing these kids' lives, their trajectory of their future. And I know that this is an opportunity for other parents to hear that it's not a label. It's something right. that can work through. The brain is an incredible organ. And like so you- We said,
1: understand this with stroke patients, right? They Stroke patients will lose the ability to talk or walk or read and, and we reteach them, even though there's a damaged section of their brain, Mm -hmm. the brain's incredibly plastic. It will, you can re, re reroute those neuropathways, which is how, is what thinking is. Mm -hmm. And, but yet we take a young, healthy brain and we don't expect any plasticity or oh, yeah. ability to reteach or repair. And that's the crime that there yeah, is easy to slap a label and categorize. It's lazy. It's wrong. Very it's inaccurate. So. It's criminal. It's appalling. I don't
0: know whatever words we want to There's a say. There's a lot of this. I honestly listening to you and just thinking about the, um, the state of our education system, I really think the reform needs to start in teacher education. I think if we start there and bring in some of the neuroscience aspect of it. So I I remember teaching, I taught at the university. um, It was like the art of teaching math, you know, the art of teaching reading. There was not any neuroscience about it at all. Mm -hmm. It, It really wasn't. And it's just, That's one of the reasons why Sandy and I got out of, you know, the public education system is because it was so archaic and it really didn't lend itself to proper education. You know, I I remember I was teaching uh, fifth or sixth grade and they asked me to pilot a math program. And so for, you know, eight weeks, 12 weeks, I had a separate math curriculum from the rest of the school. And at the end of that program, you know, we would go and report what our findings were, recommend, not recommend. I went through this whole program and it actually was a really good, solid math program. It gave great aspects of acceleration and remediation. And there was so much about it that I did like. So when it came time to, to share with the committee, I'm presenting to the superintendent and many people among his little team. And, you know, I, I gave my, my reflections. Another teacher who was doing another program, she was sharing, and she said, well, my program had a lot of rote items in it. The teacher will say this. The students will respond to that. The teacher will then move on to that. Like, it was very step-by-step-by-step by step by step teaching, and it was it was designed so that anybody could pick up the teacher's manual and teach, and they went with that program. When I went back to complain, I'm like, what the heck? That is, that's terrible. That is absolutely terrible. And, and I said, it wasn't even a win-loss thing for me. It was just like looking at my kids, what was a win-loss. And they said, well, we have to prepare for anybody to teach these classes. And I'm like, that's just, it just seems so ludicrous, but that just really was setting the stage for what education has become. When my own kids were in second and third grade, Their teacher was like, oh, it's 10.05. We need to stop this. I have to get to math. It's math time right now. The principal comes by at 10.05 and I'm not on page 26. We're in trouble. Like it was that specific that there's no more teachable moments. There's no more creativity there. It just, it's rote education and that's not good for anyone. You know, so I really think that the, the reformation has to begin in our teacher education system. How do we train people to take over these little minds? Well, and America has to take a
1: long, hard look with what how we're going to treat teachers, how we're going to pay teachers, and how you know we expect a a five year degree for a salary with not a lot of uh, potential, mm-hmm. and we want the best and brightest in our classrooms, but we're making it very. Unattractive. Only Absolutely. the heart driven, or the secondary income to the family can support can support a, a household. That's a, good so a primary educator cannot support a household, no. and that's another American issue that is uh pitiful, egregious. All of the middle
2: I don't know. sure <laughs> on these teachers, it's just just as Allison is mentioning. Uh, Clark County, which is, I live in Las Vegas, it's the fifth largest school district, sixth grade has 44, 43 students per section, and a teacher has six sections. Mm -hmm. And so that's over 200 students. There's no way, no way that one teacher can address the, individually need, the individual needs are, are to be able to custom to right. each student. No way. So it's like we're perpetuating this terrible. And story. we're
1: not really talking about it in Washoe County, but I believe there's around 180 administrators in the classroom for the unfilled positions yeah. in Washoe County because teachers could not survive the pandemic. Right in terms of what they had to do to bounce with everything and you know just i think functionally a lot of people left the profession yeah and you know it is time (laughs) for education to evolve and it's a big machine it's a political machine yeah but i would like to just appeal to the to, to the fact that we're all parents we all have children or grandchildren. And like I said earlier, if we know better, we need to do better or mm-hmm. shame on us. Yeah. So Your I don't know. Your
2: vision has been so <laughs> insightful. And I love the interdisciplinary views that you bring. Right. Because they provide so much light mm-hmm. and be able to process this information that Otherwise, we we just look at things in a vacuum and it doesn't share the whole story. This allows, I wish we could clone you. (laughs) (laughs) We we can't, we can share
0: your book. So one more time for our listeners, the title Mm. of your book. It's The
1: Struggling Student, The Action Plan for Parents to Unlock Academic Potential. It's 29 chapters of what a public school system or often a private school system won't address that Mm -hmm. could be holding your your child back. Mm -hmm. Um, Some chapters are definitely enough information for a parent to make the difference themselves. Mm -hmm. But when I felt an expert would be mandatory to deal with an issue that I'm bringing to light, like primal reflexes, for example, Mm -hmm. we talked about There are experts in those fields that um, a parent can turn to often, sometimes even uh, covered by insurance. So Mm -hmm. um, it's available on Amazon. And thanks for letting me say that. No, please. That's
0: just very, very helpful to our listeners as well. And do you you have a website yourself? Yes, it's uh, my business
1: is Academic Transformations and it's academic
0: transformations with an S dot com perfect so if you have any if you want to hear more from lisa if you want to learn from her if you have any questions for her specifically you can reach out to her through her website you can purchase her book on amazon the struggling student by lisa crosby i highly recommend it i highly recommend visiting her website as well there's a lot of great information and lisa i just i thank you so much for your time today we could keep talking for hours you have so much to share we, we agree on so much and I think together we can change the world. <laughs> well, thank you. And I seriously think maybe we
1: came up with a good idea. There needs to, we need to form our own conference with difference makers and maybe see what we can do together.
0: Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, thank, thank, you thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. I really, we really appreciate it. And I know our listeners do as well. Thank you so much for listening to Learning Reimagined. If you're enjoying this podcast, please help us spread the word by clicking the subscribe button or share your favorite episodes with families and friends and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts.